In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Tuesday. It is a beautiful stream of consciousness that you have with David and George today. I hope everybody is, I hope the birds are singing, the sun is shining, the wind is at your back, and you are ready to join and maybe grab a ring and float on this lazy river with David and I. David, how are you today, my friend? Good. How are you doing, George? I'm fantastic. Would you be so kind as to reintroduce yourself to the few people who may not know who you are? I am the Director of Undergraduate Research and Creative Activity at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. Been a professor of medieval English literature, religion, and culture for uh, three decades. Uh, Written a bunch of books. My most recent book is The Seven Deadly Sins. And uh, love talking to George from all the way way across the the country and across the water here. (laughs) Yeah. So before we get started, I... I have a a shout out I want to do to my friend Hank, who's just been such an amazing person for me. He's uh, really helped out in making this a better podcast and giving me some great feedback. And the reason I bring him up to you, David, is that in a recent post to me, he said how much he enjoyed. In fact, he said that you are the favorite guest on the True Life podcast. So, well, that's very that's very nice. I really greatly appreciate that. Fantastic. We're jumping into some Shakespeare here today, and yeah. uh, I wrote a little introduction that's something along the lines of, you know, our friend William Shakespeare is arguably the greatest writer in history. His works have been translated into every living language, even the alien language of Klingon, yeah. which uh, is pretty fascinating. He's credited with rein- with inventing over 1,700 new words and phrases, many of which remain in the common use to this day he was an aspiring he he was the son i'm sorry he was, he was the son. 
Yes, yes. And the son of a Catholic tradesman during a time of great upheaval. He apparently left the left school at the age of 13. And we're going to get into much more of that. But let's just go ahead and jump in here, David. What when I think when I say to you, yeah. William Shakespeare, what do you think of? Oh, um, huge volumes of, of the collected works like this one, um, <laughs> which, you know, when, when I when I teach courses in Shakespeare, uh, we I always begin by talking to students about sort of contextualizing all of this and understanding that if Shakespeare actually walked in the room today and noticed that we were studying these plays to the to the minutia that we're studying them, he probably would laugh his ass off. Can I say ass? Of course. Um, he would probably laugh his ass off because he did not write these plays for uh, PhDs in English to be studying them in the 21st century. He wrote these plays to make money. Um, he was, as you mentioned, an aspiring actor. And um, the plays were written with an audience in mind, and they were written to be entertainment and to be popular, and they were. Um, you know, the argument that, and I, I like the way you put it, that he's arguably the uh, the best writer in, in the English language, and it is an argument. It's an argument that's an ongoing argument. Um, in fact, uh, many folks in Renaissance studies are pretty much in agreement that he probably isn't the greatest playwright of his era. Um, that may go to Christopher Marlowe, who died young, um, but Shakespeare certainly was the most popular and remained the most popular. And the fact that you can type, you know, Shakespeare works into Amazon and come up with umpteen different editions is testament to the fact that so much of whether or not a writer survives is dependent on whether or not the work stays in print and is available to read. And for a lot of the more minor playwrights of the same era, of the Elizabethan era that Shakespeare is writing in, their, their works have disappeared because they've fallen out of print. It doesn't mean they weren't good. It doesn't mean they weren't better than Shakespeare. It just means they're not accessible. It's fascinating to think about how prolific he was as a writer yeah. and how unbelievable his depth of knowledge was in law, medicine, botany, politics, geography, history, religion, and even psychology. But yet we have so few pieces of material evidence about him that we yeah. can fit everything we know into one paragraph. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's uh, I mean, it, I suppose we should start with the question yes. that, that some people are asking, which is, well, what did, did he really write these plays? Who is this guy? Um, because we do know very little about him when compared to some other uh, writers of the era and, and even earlier. Um, so to settle that argument, and I'm not going to settle that argument, <laughs> but to try to settle that argument for our purposes, um, I believe Shakespeare wrote the plays. Um, now, you know, the authorship question, which is what the, the which is what scholars call this, um, goes back, uh, oh, centuries at this point. Um, suggestions that there are other people who wrote the plays and took the name William Shakespeare um, on as a, as a pseudonym and uh, wrote, or wrote them for him. And, uh, you know, there, there's some credibility to that. There's some interesting stuff. Um, but a lot of it, to me, as a, as a scholar, uh, ends up being sort of conspiracy theory stuff. And it seems like uh, conferences of people who meet and all wear uh, tinfoil hats, but 
Um, you know, I, I can remember showing my students once uh, several, several years ago, a video that I think it, it was a thing that had shown on PBS about Shakespeare, about the authorship question. And they asked a scholar who was a very renowned um, scholar, A.L. Rouse, very renowned Shakespeare scholar, but one of these sort of stereotypical old scholars with the tweed jacket and the and you know the sitting in the big overstuffed leather chair and and they asked him did Shakespeare write the plays and I'll never forget his response it was as if you had suggested to the Pope that there was no God he said well of course Shakespeare wrote the plays you know it was it was like you were insulting his entire religious structure um so let's start with that let's say Shakespeare wrote the plays we could do a whole argument on on the fact that he didn't but you, as you say, I mean, the Shakespeare that we know, very prolific, at least 37 plays, um, 154 sonnets, um, several poems. Um, yes, incredibly prolific. But we also have to remember that for most of his life, this was his, his occupation. This was his, his, uh, his, his way of making money. And so, yeah, he was a writer. Um, but the interesting facts about Shakespeare and then talking about the plays are kind of two different things, right? I mean, we can talk about all the stuff about Shakespeare and his life and all the interesting things that we do know and the interesting things that we don't know. Um, I mean, he wasn't, by all accounts, incredibly well-educated, and yet you you listed the, the, the litany of areas that he seems to have expertise in. Um, it's kind of baffling. Um, I mean, Ben Jonson famously uh, wrote a poem for Shakespeare that's in the front of the first folio that notes that Shakespeare had had little Latin and less Greek, um, but yet he seems to to know everything there is to know about Greek and Roman mythology. Um, how did he do all that? Uh, we don't know. Um, the gaps in his biography are are long, and are uh, still a mystery. Uh, we don't have any of the manuscripts in his own hand of the works. Nothing survives. Or I should say, nothing has been discovered. I always tell students, it still could be out there somewhere. We're discovering stuff every day. Um, but as of the moment, we don't have any manuscripts in his own hand. In fact, the only thing we have written by him is his signature. I believe we have six or eight different copies of his signature, and he spells his name differently in all of them. So that gives credence to people to say, well, the man was illiterate. How could he have written these plays? He couldn't even spell his own name. And again, we got to back up and remember that this is the early days of print. And it was there was no common spelling yet. Spelling was not a, a standardized thing when Shakespeare was writing. You wrote words out so that they could be pronounced. And if it could be pronounced and it, and it sounded the way that it should, it really didn't matter the way you spelled it. Um, spelling didn't come into, into play until after Shakespeare really... Uh, had died. And so uh, the spelling variation question is an easy one to, to kind of toss aside. Um, but he has become a myth. Um, you know, it's tantamount to the myth of, 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 of John F. Kennedy in some ways. I mean, we, 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 we say he was born and he died on the same day. That's not really true. Um, I mean, we celebrate that he was born and died on April 23rd, 1564 to 1616 are his dates, that he bo was born and died on the same day. He probably wasn't born 
we don't know if he was born on April 23rd. Let me let me clarify. So he was baptized on April 26th. There's a record of that. It was convention to baptize a baby three days after the birth. So counting back, we say, well, he must have been born April 23rd. So we don't know for certain, but there it is. We do know he died April 23rd. The really interesting thing is that April 23rd is also the feast day of St. George, the patron saint of England. And so here you have what people would argue is the greatest writer in the English language, and he's born, he born and was born and dies on the same day as the feast day of St. George, the patron saint of the country. So it just adds to the myth. It's wonderful. It may be true. It may not be. It's fascinating to think of it. It in so many ways, there's so much there for people who are great scholars and people that maybe are not so great scholars. But in some ways, I, I find it so condescending to think like, hey, how could this working person possibly mm. write this great stuff? It almost seems like there's some animosity there. Yeah, I mean, certainly there is. I mean, and, and there was at the time even. I mean, he was looked at as being, you know, what we would probably call today a kind of a hack writer because a lot of the other playwrights of the time were 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 Ox, Oxbridge educated. They either went to Oxford or Cambridge and they had educations. Um, Shakespeare did not. Uh, he attended Stratford Grammar School. That's as much as we know. Uh, he doesn't seem to have gone on from there for any other kind of advanced education. So, you know, again, where did he, how did he learn all this stuff? We don't know. We don't have his diaries. We don't have a reading list. We don't have his library. We don't know. Now, certainly over the, over the, the hundreds of years, scholars have um, produced volume after volume of analogs so we can look at his plays and see what his source materials were because most of the plays the material in the plays is not original shakespeare is taking older material and adapting it rewriting it tweaking it giving it his own spin and for most of the plays it's easy to go back and find the analog and say well this story shows up in this history book which was published in the 1560s, and that's where this comes from. But we don't have direct evidence that Shakespeare read the book, um, but there it is. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a really baffling thing, but I think you're right. I mean, there is in some ways some sort of um, classism that goes on mm. and saying, well, you know, the guy was just an average Joe. Um, how could he have done all of this? Was there any sort of evidence that he maybe spent some time with Marlowe and some of the other great playwrights of that particular time? There's some overlap and some connections with some of them. Um, a few of them he he co-wrote plays with. Um, Marlowe, I'm not sure if there's evidence that they had ever met. I'd have to ask my colleague who is a Marlowe specialist um, and is actually over in London right now uh, working on a book on Marlowe. Um, so I don't know if there's any connection there, but some, some, some other playwrights he did collaborate with and co-wrote some plays with. Um, so, you know, we, we do know, but, but it was mostly, it was competition. You had a bunch of theaters in London at the time, and all of them were in competition with each other to, to get an audience. And so they were turning out plays in order to bring an audience into the, into the theater. 
Um, and you know, the, uh, an, uh, an interesting sort of side note is the the issue of of how you got paid for all of this. Um, and the 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 basic answer is not very well. I mean, let's just use a, an example of Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare wrote for the Globe Theater. The Globe Theater is owned by somebody. He is actually writing plays and selling them to the person who owns the theater. So he no longer owns the play. So when the play is printed, if it is printed, many of them were, some of them were not, um, Shakespeare didn't make any money off of that. There were no copyright laws. Um, sometimes his name barely appears on the title page uh, because he had no stake to it anymore. Um, it's also the explanation for why there are different versions of some of the plays. Um, because a lot of them were printed based on a particular actor. So in other words, you would do a production of, oh, I don't know, let's pick Hamlet. And then the, the guy who played one of the sentrymen at the beginning of the play goes off and goes to one of the printers in London and says, you know, here, I know the script. And he narrates it and it gets written down. And so there are going to be errors there. Um, and one of the interesting things is that um, there is a, a, there is an error in the quarto editions of Hamlet, where in one of the quartos, the opening night guardsmen are referred to as guard one and guard two, but in the later editions, they have names. And so you can sort of tell who is responsible for, you know, the, the, the guy who played Benvolio is not going to, you know, have his name left out and just have himself be called guard one. <laughs> Um, you know, he's Francisco and, and, and I want to be named. Uh, so the, the printing is, is really kind of interesting. And this all leads up, of course, to after Shakespeare dies in 1623, when um, Hemings and Condell get together and compile the edition of Shakespeare that becomes known as the First Folio, which is uh, one of the most valuable books that anyone can own. Um, and... Uh, celebrated, uh, you know, is about to celebrate, well, what are we, 2023, so 400 years. Um, and you can uh, see copies of it at, at various libraries throughout the U.S. because it is available. And it's, it's a neat thing to see. Um, it has the, the, the very uh, recognizable woodcut of Shakespeare on the title page and, and all of the, uh, the other, other additional materials in the front, including that poem by, by Ben Johnson. Uh, but they, they put it together in 1623 and as homage to, to him. Here's all of his work. It was really the first time that, um, one of the first times, I should say, that, that works were collected in that way by, of an author and put together in one volume for sale. Now, of course, that's par for the course. Um, but it, it is what eventually then kept Shakespeare in the public eye. I mean, throughout the 18th century, especially Shakespeare, was very popular, and editions of Shakespeare just are all over the place. They're they're published left and right, um, and that is is what keeps them in front of people's eyes. You know, the work's got to be in print. Yeah, it, there's no such thing as bad publicity. You know, as long as you right. have your name out there, regardless if you're a, a a hero or a villain, you know, you're out there and often those things change back and forth. I'm curious as yeah. to, you know, it seemed like a pretty tumultuous time with the, the, the rise of Protestantism and Catholicism and the changing of the queen. And yeah, what 
do you think that that is something that, I think that's something that affected his father, according to what I read, but yeah, but there's a lot of, there's question about whether Shakespeare was a Catholic. Mm. Um, we don't know for sure. Um, there are elements of both Catholicism and Protestantism that kind of pop up in different plays. Um, he wrote his early work under Queen Elizabeth and then later on his later works, most notably Macbeth, once uh, James was on the throne. And, um, you know, I've always been very interested in the religious elements in there because that's what I study. And uh, it is it is quite interesting. I mean, you know, one, one of the things that that I that I find most intriguing is I mean, I I teach Hamlet a lot. I love I love that play. I think it's I think it's his masterpiece because it has elements of of everything in it, comedy and tragedy. And and um, the interesting thing about it is when I talk with students about the the ethical dilemma that Hamlet has. So his his father's ghost has come back to him at the beginning of the play to tell him that his uncle was responsible for killing him. And now his uncle is on the throne and has remarried Hamlet's mother. Basic plot. And Hamlet has to take revenge. The ghost has told him, revenge my death. And so he knows that he has to kill Claudius, his uncle, uh, really from very early in the play. And um, he fails to do it, even though he has many opportunities. And I think what is really interesting about the play and interesting about Hamlet's character is he represents in many ways us. He really is struggling between what he feels compelled and 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 he feels that he is responsible to do to avenge his father's death. His father's appeared for him, to him from the afterlife and said, I, I can't rest until you avenge my death. And Hamlet knowing that murder's wrong. And so he's constantly split between, you know, what is it going to mean in the afterlife? What is it going to be like in the afterlife? And what does it mean if I actually do commit this murder and kill him? Because it, it, it's, it's incredibly powerful to watch as this character really goes back and forth. And, and, and he is, the, the word that is most representative of Hamlet throughout the play is, is the word doubt. Hmm. Um, he doubts. And doubt doesn't have the, the necessarily the negative connotation that it does for us. Doubt in Elizabethan English means question. He questions. He questions everything, right? To be or not to be. It's a question, right? He questions everything. And for many critics over the over the years that they were point to his questioning as, as his downfall. That's his tragic flaw, that he questions everything instead of being an actor and 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 putting things into action, he thinks too much. Um, and I, I find that very intriguing because I just I think that's the human condition. Right. Um, we have a conscience. Um, and he has a conscience. And even though he is stark, raven, pissed about what's happened to his father and that his uncle has remarried his mother, he cannot bring himself to commit murder because he knows that's wrong. And he's worried about what's, what it's going to mean to his soul in the afterlife. It's so beautiful in so many ways. Because when I think of... You know, thank you for translating the 
the the language from what we think it is today to an understanding of what it was at that time. It's so much can get lost in translation. But back to the idea of beauty, it's this idea of questioning, at least to me, that makes life worthwhile. Yeah. You know, what, right. Yeah. No. Nothing definitely. I mean, I, I and I think the quest. Um, you know, going back to medieval literature, the quest, yes. um, the, the the search, um, and the fact that we never stop. Um, you know, and, and that uncovered just the other day in the news, right? So speaking of medieval literature, Geoffrey Chaucer, the author of Canterbury Tales, we for a long time had assumed based on some evidence from some documents that he had been uh, accused of rape. And uh, just last week at a conference, um, some scholars presented some new evidence that uh, contradicts that and basically says, no, it, it, it's not true. And it's pretty compelling evidence that people pretty much agree with. So it's about the questions about never stopping to, 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 to look for things. Um, I remember, uh, must've been back in the nineties, I guess, uh, a couple of Americans got a grant to go over to Stratford to use some fairly sophisticated X-ray equipment to x-ray the bust of Shakespeare that's sitting in the church in Stratford because they were convinced that the manuscripts were inside the bust. So they went over and they x-rayed the bust that of course, the only thing that's inside the bust is dust, <laughs> manuscripts. But it's this constant, you know, we believe, you know, that they're, they're out there somewhere, right? Someone's gonna discover them. Um, and so I think you're right, you know, as, as I say, I mean, I just think that that's the, that's the human condition, right? The quest, the quest for knowledge, the quest for love, uh, the quest for truth. And, and I think, you know, all of that is, is wrapped up in a character like Hamlet. Do you think like, I try to put myself, I, I like to imagine what it might've been like to be sitting at the globe theater. Mm. It's one thing to read a brilliant writer. It's another thing to see that person's words acted out by the best people of their time. And I think it's different to see something live yeah. to be part. I feel like you're actually part of a ritualistic ceremony. Oh, very much. Way. And, and especially at the, at the places like the globe and the Rose and the other theaters in London at the time, because they were small. Uh, and so you, and, and, and if anybody has been to the, the, the globe reconstruction in London, mm. um, which is fairly accurate, um, you can see how small um, it was small. It was crowded. Um, and they did not have the kinds of accoutrement that we think of in a theater now. There's no curtain. Um, there are no lights. There's no, you know, microphones. And so you've got, a, a, and the playwrights knew this, so they built this in. So, you know, you read Shakespeare's plays and you'd say, you know, my God, somebody comes on and why do they have to say who he is? It's like, well, because they didn't hand out a playbill. Because most of your audience probably can't read anyway. Why are you going to do that? But also, I mean, you know, you need to identify who these characters are when they come on stage. And add to that the fact that some people played, actors played more than one character in a play. So when they came on, okay, who's that? Um, but no, no curtain, um, no lights. So it had to be performed during the daytime. Um, if, the, if the weather got bad, um, they wouldn't perform. Uh, so like a like a baseball game, it would get get called on account of inclement weather. Um, but it was also 
um, very crowded and and very odoriferous, especially in the summer. <laughs> People would bring their dogs and bring food, and you could imagine that down there in the pit where the, the where the cheap seats were, um, which is 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 the, the groundlings they called them. Um, they don't get a seat; they just they're standing there on the ground in in the in the pit. It was probably pretty damn stinky, um, <laughs> and also maybe difficult to hear, um, which is why oftentimes uh, lines will be repeated. Um, so I mean, you see that in Hamlet, where where a, a character will will say something, and then the next character will repeat the last five words of the previous line, almost in mimicry, but it's, it's there for a reason, but it's also there because you may not have heard that. Um, you know, and, and, and good examples when um, Hamlet first sees the ghost, and the, and the ghost says that he was, he was killed uh, by his uncle, and, and, and Shakespeare, uh, uh, his father says, your uncle and and Hamlet says my uncle, you know, is repeating it. You got to make sure people hear, right? So yes, it was a very different experience from today. Um, you can experience something like it if you go to the Globe in London today, because they still do Shakespeare there, and they do it the same way. Um, so there's no microphones, no lighting, um, and it's during the day, and so you can have that experience. And and you can go if you're in London. And get uh, pretty cheap tickets to get in. Um, the groundling seats, which are those ones that are down in the pit. Um, last time I looked, I think they were about ten pounds. So, um, you know, that's not bad. It's cheaper than an American movie. Um, yeah. I mean, my gosh, we went to the movies the other day, and after we bought our snacks, I think we spent a hundred dollars. It was ridiculous. Yeah. But, yeah. So it's very different experience to be sure. And and also remember that. Um, at the time of Shakespeare, all, every, all the actors on stage would have been males. Um, females were not allowed on stage, not allowed to perform on stage. Um, if anyone has seen Shakespeare in Love, um, the Tom Stoppard's uh, really great film, um, you'll see that that's, that deals with that very issue. Um, so a lot of the, the female parts were actually written for boys. Um, so you would get them on there before their, their voices had changed. It gives a different idea to Romeo and Juliet seeing it in the. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's I, it's so fascinating to think the way in which information can be disseminated as well. I think there was a troop called the Kingsmen that would go around on behalf yeah. of the Queen and and sort of. I don't know if it's propaganda, but it, it, it may be a message that's wanted out. It's weird to think that that was a a, a method in which information was dispersed well they were they were patronized by the crown mm. so um early on in shakespeare's career it was the lord chamberlain's men um and then once elizabeth died and james took the throne it was they changed it to the king's men um and and they were basically patronized by the throne and so i mean it's it's pretty clear that shakespeare wrote the play macbeth for king james um, who was very interested in magic and demonology and things like that. Um, we know that uh, Midsummer Night's Dream was probably written for a wedding. Um, so, you know, there are, there's evidence for some of these things, but certainly, you know, you, you take into account not only who your audience is, but who's paying the bills, <laughs> right? You know, um, and so that, that comes into play to be sure. 
Yeah, I'm also, curious, George, to yeah. hear your first experience with Shakespeare, because I'll tell you about mine then. Okay. Let's trade. Okay, fair enough. I, mine, oh gosh, I think I saw some sort of play, or I, I think that we did a scene of Romeo and Juliet when I was in middle school. And I wish I could go back and see it because it's probably really funny. You know, there's kids up there like just, yeah, yeah. you know, looking up at a window and, and doing their best to remember a few words. But that, that was my first aspect. I, I, and, you know, I was in the audience. I, I remember seeing it because all the kids mm. would go to the auditorium. Hey, we're going to go watch the eighth graders now. And, you know, there was a just a small group of people that were in drama. In fact, you know what it might it might have been back when I was in middle school, you had what you had. You had a exploration and you had wood shop metal shop home ec and i think drama was in there so oh. you would go and get a little flavor from all these things and the drama teacher would take you know the two best kids from each period or whatever and make something of them and and that's who did it and yeah i, I remember it was on fridays at like before lunchtime you would go and watch a, a auditorium or something they call yeah. it but you know it was and they had some cool costumes and i think that there was a it might have been Trisha McEwen, like a really cute young girl that was doing her. But you know that that, that was kind of my intro to it, and it, yeah. it was cool. I remember I remember liking it, but it was a you long did, time yeah. ago. Yeah, see, mine was 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 different. So, um, I mean, as I've mentioned before, I mean, I I was not a, a reader of fiction <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, I read a lot of nonfiction, science, history, but I did not read fiction until really I got into college when I. Um, saw saw the, the the light bulb turn on for for English as a as a major, and um, I was uh, ten years old. I was in Hebrew school, being um, trained by a rabbi in preparation for my bar mitzvah, one on one because I was the only student at the at this school, and for some reason he felt, I think he he had taken on the role of a mentor. He really saw himself as, as mentoring me. Um, and he brought me his set of the Folger Shakespeare library, which is a, this was the little, little paperback editions of Shakespeare. Um, and he must've given me probably about 20 of them. I remember them, they were yellowed and they were old, but these are the Folger Shakespeare library editions, which are still in print today. They're the they're facing page. So one page has the Shakespeare text. The other page has glosses about words and explaining what words mean, kind of translating them for you. And he gave me these. And I mean, I, I remember appreciating them, but I didn't understand them. I remember trying to read one of them. I think I didn't understand what the heck was. I was lost and put them on a shelf. And then in high school, um, was exposed to you know the traditional high school Shakespeare where I, I think we read Julius Caesar, which which they don't read anymore, and Romeo and Juliet and Midsummer Night's Dream, and then I believe King Lear and maybe Macbeth. Um, I struggled, I struggled. I didn't understand the language. Um, I, I really got hung up on the language. I just could not understand the language, and it was not until I got to college when I took a course called uh, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, that the light bulb went on for some reason. 
Um, we had we read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. We read four plays by Shakespeare. I can still remember which ones. And then all of Milton's Paradise Lost. And that is what completely shifted my life and made me into an English major. I don't know why all of a sudden the light bulb went on. Um, I must have been 18, 19. Um, I guess it was just the right time and place in my life. And I understood it. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny because I, I, I can appreciate it when people look at Shakespeare and say, you know, I don't understand what he's talking about. Why doesn't he just say that? You know, what, what's all this? <laughs> right. And I get that because I felt the same way. Um, but I think part of the trick is, uh, I think, as you mentioned before, these plays were written to be performed. Mm. They were not written to be read on the page. So we actually do it a big disservice when all we do is read it on the page. But if you read it out loud, it starts to make more sense because the lines make more sense. You can see the lines that run on and the, the, the rhymes where there is rhyme start, you hear it. But if you're just reading it on a flat page, you miss a lot of it. And so these plays were written to be heard. They really were. And so they are about what they sound like. And, um, you know, now we've got Audible and all these other things. You can download, you know, recordings of, of, of the plays. And, I mean, I still, to this day even, if, if I'm going to teach or read a play that I'm unfamiliar with, I will get a good, uh, you know, video version uh, recording of the play and, and watch it with the text. Uh, because sometimes the little nuances, they don't make any sense on the page. But when you see him on stage, it's like, oh, now I get it, right? I mean, like there's, there's a there's a line in, I, I keep coming back to Hamlet. Sorry, there's a line in Hamlet when again when the when the ghost appears, and uh, Hamlet wants the the um, the two uh, sentrymen to swear on his sword that they won't reveal that they, that Hamlet has seen the ghost, and he's running around on the stage making them swear. And at one time, at one point, he says, he says, oh, there's the ghost says swear. And Hamlet says, hic et ubique, which is Latin for here and everywhere. He's moving around on the stage. Wherever he goes, the ghost is there. But if you see, if you read that on the page, you don't necessarily pick that up. If you see it acted on the stage. It's like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. You know, in some, like, I didn't think about this until you just, had mentioned what you did and, and thank you for sharing that story. It makes me, it makes me a little bit upset that all of this was stripped out of the education of kids. Like think about how much yeah. better of an understanding you could get. If you, if you, I hate to say the word force, but you might have to force these kids. Hey, you're going to play this role. I want you to play this role. Yeah. Here's who you are. Now you get to not only read and act out, but participate in it. And Oh, I see I'm here and I'm everywhere. I'm chasing this ghost, you know, Whatever, however silly the ghost may seem that you can put on stage, like at least the kid gets an opportunity to live the story. And I, it makes me so sad to think that literature and these ideas of education have been stripped from yeah. the human the human condition in some ways. Well, and especially Shakespeare. Um, yeah, he seems to have been one of the one of the latest to go. Um, yeah, from a lot of the yeah. curricula, um, which are becoming more and more focused on teaching nonfiction. And moving away from teaching literature, um, I'm always amazed when I ask students, you know, 
have you read this in you know what I would think of as standard high school reading? Nope, never heard of it. Um, most recently, it's in the last couple of days. There's been a big controversy in New Zealand about getting rid of Shakespeare from the curriculum over there, arguing that he is. Um, uh, it's all about colonialism, and he's he's really it. it and it, it, it brings up the whole argument about presentism, which we've talked about before, right? About looking at, at this text, which is 400 years old, through the lens of today. Um, now, granted, it's the only lens we've got, but it's unfair, I think, to cancel, to use a common yeah. used now uh, word, to cancel Shakespeare because we say, oh, well, he's all, it's all about colonialism and that's bad. Yeah, it is. He didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and he was writing. It was a different different world. And following, he was. He, they're looking at the Greek tragedies, but like Seneca, or they're, like they're just they're doing the same thing, but just reinventing the same thing. It, yeah. It seems odd that we would just get rid of all. Let's just get rid of all of it. Well, then there's nothing left. Everything is a replica of something from the past. Yeah, and it, it just it, it's it's a shame because I think that, and I say this as somebody who did not like reading literature in high yeah, school. I know. I think that, you know, reading literature, it really does engage a young imagination in ways that other disciplines and other work can't really do, um, if done right, if right. done right. Um, you know, I mean, we, we see, you know, so th th there's the ongoing discussion about, well, if we teach Shakespeare, you know, there are all these now modernized editions of Shakespeare that you can get, right? Shakespeare, uh, what's it called? No Sweat Shakespeare. There's a, where, where somebody has basically rewritten the plays in contemporary English. Um, and it's, it's and, and, and if we do nothing today, let me do this. Shakespeare did not write in old English. He actually wrote in modern English. Shakespearean English is early modern English. Old English you would not recognize. Old English is Beowulf. <laughs> okay, if I read a line from Beowulf, you would not understand it. Um, so Shakespeare did not write in Old English. So, but there are these editions of Shakespeare in in contemporary English, and it's like, well, you know, I get that, and you want students to understand the the the, the story and the meaning of the text, but they're also in the process then losing the beauty of the language. Which, admittedly, yeah, it's a little difficult. It's a little difficult. But, you know, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, put on your, your, your big boy pants and, 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 and get to it here. Um, you know, it, it, I don't think that we should be just dismissing things that, that are just, a, oh, it, it's too hard. I can't read that. I mean, that's why you have the Folger editions that have the facing page. I think those are great. I recommend those all the time. Um, especially to somebody new to Shakespeare, they're wonderful. Yeah, and I think if you can begin to encounter the situations in which he writes about at a young age, those things are going to pop in your head later in life. Oh, I see what's happening here, or wow, yeah. this is a lot like that. You know, yeah. it's it's fascinating to think what you what can be put in your mind that can help you later in life. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there are there are scenes from. Some of the plays, which certainly you know stick with me on an ongoing basis, and 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 I keep coming back to, um, you know, and some of it, some of it humorously, some of it not. I mean, you know, there's, there's a line from Polonius where he, he accuses Hamlet and Ophelia, he accuses their love of being hot love on the wing, 
And I always joke and say, that's going to be the name of the wing joint I open up. Hot love on the wing. Um, I think it's a great name for a wing place. Yeah. I'm a vegetarian, but hey, you know. <laughs> like, you know, it, it begs the question, like, what do you think was going through um, Hamlet's mind when he was knowing things were wrong? Like, where did he get his ethics from? Like, he probably had a pretty good upbringing. But what, what do you think was going through his mind when, when he was? I, I, I We don't know. You know, I mean, that, and that's that's one of the. It's interesting that you bring that up because that's one of the the ongoing um, debates in in Hamlet studies. And there is a whole sub genre called Hamlet studies where people just study that play. And um, the, uh, famously, Hamlet was accused of having an Oedipus complex mm. that, he, that he 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 wanted to kill his father because he wanted to sleep with his mother. And um, this is, of course, right out of Freud and his student, Ernst Jones, who wrote a famous book called Hamlet and Oedipus um, about that very issue. And it was it was really played up in the Laurence Olivier film version of the 1940s, which was really the first great film of of the play. But he played up that angle. And um, the problem with 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 the theory is that in Ernst Jones book, Hamlet and Oedipus, he starts off by talking about Hamlet's childhood. We don't know anything about child, Hamlet's childhood. <laughs> the play doesn't give us any flashbacks. Yeah. We have no idea what his upbringing was like. We only know where he's at now. And we can understand his, his ethics from what he says, what he tells us, particularly in his soliloquies, and his, his, his really just deep, deep thought process. Um, I mean, the guy is just, you know, the first time we see him on stage, he's all dressed in black because he's mourning the death of his father, um, which he just has is having a really hard time getting over. Um, he was not home for that. He was away at school. Um, he was called home for the funeral. Um, and he's been home now. Uh, and, and now the new king uh, has been has been uh, coronated at the opening of the play and Hamlet wants to go back to school and uh, his mother and uh, his uncle don't want him to. And that's when we first see him. And, you know, it, it, it his, his, it, it, it's not just about his allusions to literature and history and mythology in his speeches, but it's just about the beauty of just his language. I mean, he's a poet, right? He really is a poet. And the way that he thinks is is the mind of a poet and a philosopher. Hmm. Um, and 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 for me, as I say, you know, the the sort of the quintessential human being um, who is 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 looking for a kind of stillness that we talked about with the mystics. Yeah, um, that's what he wants. Um, he doesn't want to be king. He's not interested in that. Um, he's interested in studying. He wants to go back to school. Uh, he agrees not to because his mother asks him not to, and uh, that it's then in the next scene that he sees the the ghost of his father and is set on his path. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up about him being a poet. I think we've talked about it before, and we do talk about the mystic tradition and communication and and all these ways of. You know, sometimes communication being the logos or seeing God or having one of these experiences. And I think that the language, I think that the ability for him to communicate is almost divine. It's almost like that's the 
that type of communicator is like a bridge between the divine and the rest of us. It's almost like when you're so absorbed in something you hear, you see, all your senses are being commanded by listening to something like that. It takes us to a place that is unlike any place we've been to. Maybe that is why he is so celebrated, is that it's this last, it's it's almost like the last time we had, it almost must be like something like the, the people that would go and speak the Homeric verses to people that were illiterate because they were these poets and they've memorized these, you know, incredible lengthy poems. It's this last grasp of something that, is in our souls. It's something that was given to us. It's been handed down from time to time. It's like the last piece of that, it seems like. Well, and 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 the, the really incredible thing, of course, is that Shakespeare then articulates that through the character, right? He puts, he, he gives the character words to articulate that to us. Right. So, you know, I mean, you know, arguably some of the, the, the most incredible uh, speeches in all of Hamlet or Hamlet's, in all of Shakespeare are Hamlet's soliloquies. Right, we're hearing what goes on in his mind, what he's thinking, and it's incredible because it 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 it, it reflects the just the, the 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 conflict that he's got within himself. Um, you know, I know I'm supposed to do this, but I also know it's wrong, right? And I mean, he even questions at one point, you know, am I a coward? Hmm. Right, thinking, you know, I've had the opportunity to do this and I haven't done it. What's wrong with me? Um, it's just incredible. And I think you're right. I mean, it is, it almost seems like a glimpse of, of the divine. Yeah. We're getting some kind of, of, of a mediator here who's, who's articulating that for us. It's almost like he's speaking the words in your mind that you've said to yourself from yeah. time to time, which makes this connection possible. Like, you know, you get goosebumps thinking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, 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 I can't remember who it was. I want to say it was, uh, it was it was a Scottish writer in the 19th century. Well, I can't remember now off the top of my head. He he actually said he said we are Hamlet. Right? <laughs> and, and, and we are. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, he was arguing that's what's so great about the play is we're Hamlet. Um, that that Shakespeare was able to to show us ourselves, right? And it's the old yeah. the old uh, you know theory about art being uh, you know holding a mirror up to nature, right? I mean, he he's showing yeah. us ourselves. Yeah, that, I think that maybe that is, that's it. It's it's that moment in a good Walter book. Scott. It's that. That's is it. That, Walter Scott. <laughs> Walter Scott. There you go. Yeah, it, it seems to me what he may be explaining, at least in my point of view, is that moment you're in a good book, that moment you're at a play, but that moment you forget who you are and you become that person. Like, is there a, yeah. how much there's a German word for that? There seems to be a German word for that. There, there's a German word for everything. <laughs> right. And if there's not, they'll make one for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true, man. Um, yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, it, it, it is that, that moment when you just, you're, you're in your, you know, it, it's people who talk about getting, quote unquote, getting lost in a book, right? And getting lost in a book is the point where the characters become real, right? They're no longer these fictitious figures, but you, I mean, I have in my mind, I mean, Hamlet is never physically described in the right. play, but I have in my own mind what I, how I envision him, what he looks like. Now it's going to be different probably for every reader and that's fine. 
right? That's fine. That's yeah. you and you communing with the text. Um, but I mean, you know, I know people, my, my wife will talk about, you know, she'll read a novel and, you know, if a character dies, I mean, she, she cries sometimes. Um, you get so invested in them, they become, they, they, they transcend the page. Right. Right. And the greatest writers are able to do that. And I would say, I mean, Shakespeare is incredibly able to do that over and over and over again. Um, you know, from Romeo and Juliet, which is one of his earliest plays, all the way through to King Lear, which is one of his later plays. Um, you know, those characters just are are real. Now, some people will say, oh, Romeo and Juliet is so simplistic and, and facile. Yeah, he's a young playwright. Um, he's adapting material from, from the Italian. Um, and, you know, is it, is it some work of, of, you know, it's not, it's not the Iliad, um, Romeo and Juliet, but it's, it's a, it's a good play. Um, it has flaws, but what doesn't, I mean, you know, and, and, and folks will look at some of this and forget that writers, anybody really, I mean, never mind writers, the heck with writers, us, that we mature in our thinking and our art over the course of our lives. So something that I believed when I was 25, I probably don't believe today when I'm 58, right? I mean, my life has changed and my view of things has changed and my understanding and maybe my whole philosophy of things has changed. And my students oftentimes, they'll have a hard time with, with Jung, somebody that we like mm. to talk about yeah. when it comes to this, because they'll read something that Jung wrote when he was early in his career and then later on in the course, we'll read something else about the same topic that he wrote later in his career, and it seems to contradict it. It's like, yes, yeah, thinking changed. Doesn't <laughs> yours? Yeah. Yeah, it's, and I think maybe some people that take that aspect of it being facile, that, that some of the greatest times I have are moments of contemplation when I look back at a previous time in my life. And I go, oh, I can't believe I thought that. But then okay. I'll just rethink about it. And it, it'll, it's such a rich memory. And there's still stuff you can learn. Like, why did I think that? Oh, I thought that because of these circumstances. Yeah. Oh, my. Wow. What about those? Like, It's still such a rich ground to mine. Like, and those, some of those are the best times to go back and revisit. And even if they are silly, what a great time to go back and laugh at yourself and understand yeah. how far you've come. Like, those are beautiful times. Well, and it and it's an indication of your 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 personal growth, your intellectual growth, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I I mean, as as a scholar and as a teacher, I, I I love the fact that I can pick up a copy of a book that I actually read when I was in college, and I use that same copy to teach from today, and to see the notes that I had written in it, you know, forty years ago when I knew nothing, you know, and compared to now. And it is a, a kind of a, you know, chuckle at yourself kind of thing. And, and I, um, I, I like that because I also, I tend to share when things like that happen with my students because I want them to understand yeah. that you're not going to understand it all right away at this moment, but it may, you may, you know, 10 years from now, you may look back on this and say, Oh, now I get it. Mm -hmm. Right. And those are the moments. I mean, that, that's what we, we we thrive on in education, right? It, it, it's not that you're going to learn everything and understand it all tomorrow for the test. It's call me in 10 years and tell me what you think, right? The and real test. Too often, unfortunately, especially in American education, we don't focus on that. 
we're so focused on immediate assessment mm -hmm. that we're not taking into consideration the fact that it's you're you're not really ready to to really fully digest this yet, but file it away somewhere. And as you develop and mature, it will come into focus and then you'll get it. And, you know, I, I, I like to know about that and to do that kind of follow up with students. I mean, it's one of the, the one of the few really good reasons to have Facebook, um, right? I mean, I'm connected with so many of my former students on Facebook who can still, you know, communicate with me and talk to me and, and, and they remember things and to tell me that they remember X, Y, or Z. And it's just, it, it, that makes it as, a, as, a, as an instructor, as an educator for me. Um, I mean, I'm still in contact with, with students that I taught when I was in graduate school um, in the dark ages, you know? Those students <laughs> now, one of them is a, is a principal at a high school in, in Connecticut. Uh, hard to believe. I, I would imagine that you have inspired the lives of lots of people in your classroom and probably even ones that haven't reached out to you. But, but that has to be an incredibly rewarding moment. And especially in times like this, it's nice to know. I, I've had a couple people reach out to me that, that I used to work with a long time ago I, when I was helping out and doing some things. And it's so interesting how that call or that email sometimes finds you in one of your darkest places and just shines a light and makes everything brighter yeah. around you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. W which is also <sighs> reason to, to, to remember that, um, you know, saying something to somebody yeah. may, may have that effect. Right. Um, and, and I think too often we, 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 we don't say things like that and tell people how important they are and how much they mean. And, you know, when it comes to experiences and particularly, of course, in education, but but even other experiences, right? To, to relay, you know, that I remember when we did this and, and you know, that's a really fond memory for me. Um, but I, I, I think that that does, it, it brightens a person's day. I mean, you telling me that, you know, people people love the, the podcast when, when we're on talking together. Yeah. I mean, it's my day, you know. Yeah. And you don't have to tell me that, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it makes me happy, and I want to share it with you because it, it's 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 something that combines like in one way. I'm trying to communicate to people the threads or the this network that I see being built, and here's people like, "Hey, we enjoy this," and I'm like, "I enjoy it." David Solomon enjoys it. Like it's this collective awesomeness yeah. that that is being built. I wonder if yeah. what, what do you think Shakespeare would say if he could see like obviously there were times when he could see the reactions of the crowd what what how, how do you like this is kind of a crazy question but yeah i wonder how he felt seeing the fruits of his labor i don't know if he was i don't know um i don't know i don't know if he was pleased with his success i mean he did have success while he was alive um you know he 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 was a he was a a, a commuter um, because he went back and forth from Stratford to London, and uh, you know we don't we just don't know so much about his life that it's just hard to understand what was going on day by day and day to day. We, we I mean he had three children with his wife uh, Anne Hathaway, um, not the actress, um, <laughs> and uh, a, a boy Hamnet um, who died. 
uh, early on, uh, we think is part of the reason possibly for the name Hamlet in the mm -hmm. play. Um, and then there were two twins um, who did survive. But oddly enough, there are no descendants. Um, I believe one of his daughters, I think, had a daughter, but she either died or only had daughters. I forget, but there, there, there were actually, there were no descendants, which is really an oddity, especially for the time, um, because people had tended to have large families, um, but they did not. They did not. Well, I got, uh, as we're getting ready to land this plane here, I have a comment that I want to put on the, <laughs> on the screen here. This comes from our friend Benjamin George. Any thoughts on Shakespeare being Sir Francis Bacon? I think Francis Bacon was happy being Francis Bacon and Shakespeare was happy being Shakespeare. <laughs> I do not think they are the same person. But that's just my my thoughts, as you as you say, Ben. Um, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily have all the evidence to back that up because I'm not a scholar of the authorship question. But um, I, I, I don't believe... I believe that there's a, a more likely... Uh, case to be made that he is um uh oh what's the guy's name there's a society named for him that it's another one of the 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 guys who they say may be shakespeare mm -hmm. um but no I, I i don't think he was i don't think bacon was shakespeare i think bacon was bacon <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I think there was some sort of uh, there, uh there's countless theories however but i think some of them say that it was a sort of aristocratic individual who wanted to kind of help the people understand what was happening in the times or something like that. But uh, I, I, I think we're overstepping how magnanimous they would have been. <laughs> right. I don't right. think that a lot of the people from that, that upper class would have cared less what, <laughs> what the commoners thought. Absolutely. I guess that's one part of Shakespeare because there's not so much that we know about him for me. It's nice to say something like he was one of us. And when you said we are all Hamlet, it allows yeah. me to think of someone. Here's a person that got up, did what they did. They love what they did. And they didn't need to have all kinds of accolades. They, they were this person that you can, and you get to be the, you get to write history's last or Hamlet, or you get to write Shakespeare's last chapter in your own mind of what you think yeah. about him. So I, yeah, I enjoy exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 let me leave you with some, some, some trivia here because um, I, I got my notes out to tell you a couple of things. So the one is about the language. So you, you noted this earlier. Um, Shakespeare introduced probably 3,000 words to the English language um, that we have because of him. Um, his vocabulary itself ranged from 17,000 to 29,000 words, which doesn't mean anything to anybody until I say that's at least double the number of words used by an average person. Um, so that's a lot of words. Um, he used 7,000 words only once in his works. So one time he used that word. And um, a lot of influence on the language, a lot of influence on our language. Um, but there are also all sorts of interesting things. I had a student years ago who did a project on uh, flowers in Shakespeare's plays. And she planted a, a, a Shakespeare garden on campus with the flowers. Um, there are birds that we have in the United States, which we only have because of Shakespeare, because there was a, a Shakespeare lover in the 1890s 
who decided he was going to bring examples of all the birds that were mentioned in Shakespeare's plays to the U.S., um, one of them being starlings. So the reason why we have starlings in the U.S., he brought starlings to Central Park. He was a New Yorker, and that's why we have them. Um, so, you know, in interesting things like that. The first portrait that was bought by the National Portrait Gallery is the famous uh, Chanos portrait of Shakespeare, the one with the earring um, that everybody recognizes. So it's just all sorts of, of, of rich, juicy stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. Dave, I, I'm so thankful that you got to spend some time with me again on this Tuesday. Absolutely. And this is a lot of fun. Maybe next week we'll dive into Hamlet and get into some 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 deep stuff in there but absolutely that would be fun for now where what where can people find you what are you got going coming up and what are you excited about so my uh website is david Sol david a solomon s-a-l-o-m-o-n dot com um and you can find my books there my blog um my speaking stuff my consulting um working on a new blog post on the topic of wonder um, so that should be done probably within about a week. Um, and excited about the fact that uh, I hope finally here in Virginia it's becoming fall and the temperatures are getting a little bit cooler. Although uh, I certainly wouldn't want the uh, the cold that some of the country is having right now. There, there's a big cold snap in the middle of the country. But um, so happy that 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 fall is almost here and uh, looking forward to that. Well, fantastic. Thanks again for today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for spending time with us. So thank you to everybody. I hope you have a great day and read some Shakespeare. Aloha.
Spotify, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.